you have to realize that the only way in life to, to actually fail, the mm-hmm. only way you can truly fail at anything, I don't care what it is, is to quit. Yeah. The only thing I did different than the person that truly failed was they quit and I didn't. Yo, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Build Your Network podcast, the only top-rated show committed to helping you grow your business, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Let's get into the show. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the show. Today, I am sitting down with a buddy of mine, Chris Noggle. Chris, what's up, dude? Welcome. Thanks, man. Honored and privileged to be here. So I know that we're going to go probably a lot of different directions with this conversation. Very curious to talk about some like very basic personal finance principles with you and then also some more advanced tax savings principles for some of the more advanced business owners that, that listen to the show. But I want to start with where I always start, which is context, because I think that I think that everything else definitely depends on if anybody even cares to hear what you have to say about it. So we're going to move back in time and give people a reason to care. Okay, so rewind the clock for us. Take us back to... 12-year-old, 13-year-old Chris Nagel, what was life like for you? Where'd you grow up? What were your parents like? What were your goals at the time? Yeah, you know, I grew up like a lot of other people. It was a lower, lower middle-class family, little 700-square-foot, two-bedroom house. Earlier on, it was me, mom, and dad, but dad ended up leaving. He was uh, a little drinking problem, so he was out of the picture. Mom raised me by herself. It was a big struggle for her. Do you remember your dad? Yeah, well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You still know him now? Yep. Okay. Gotcha. But it just at the time was just like, I'm done. Yeah. He just, he was part of my life in and out, you yeah. know, but just, you know, when you have a, a father that's an alcoholic, sometimes, you know, there's just different parts of life where it's just kind of just flat. You don't really remember much. And then mm-hmm. certain parts where you were doing a lot and then not, and that's kind of been my history with my dad. So my mom was an influential part in my life. And I, I remember about that time, I mean, I was just skateboarding. You know, I was big into dirt bikes and maybe even BMX back then. So those are the the main things I focused on as a kid, but I will tell you, not having money, what we did a lot is I was a dreamer. You know, I would, when I wanted something like, uh, I had this infatuation with building a BMX track mm. in my backyard. I'd see it in BMX plus and I'd be like, I want that. I couldn't afford that. I'll never forget the one time I, uh, saved up mowing lawns and doing all sorts of odds and ends jobs. And I got a dump truck full of clay, which is dirt. Yeah, yeah. And most people are like, oh my God, what? That's what you're excited about. That was the greatest day when I was, it was probably about <laughs> when I was 12. And they dumped it in the driveway. And all summer long, I wheelbarrowed it back single-handedly. Yeah. And I built a BMX track. It didn't nice. look like the one in the magazine. But <laughs> yeah, it not was, quite. It was mine. It was yeah. my vision coming together. So my whole upbringing was like that. When I wanted something, we couldn't just go buy it. Sure. So I drew it and I would fixate on it. I would, I would literally probably dream about things. And mm-hmm. funniest thing, and you know this, but you know, all those things happen. Yeah. The BMX, the dirt bike tracks, the every bit yeah. that I dreamt about all came to actually happen in my life. What about uh what about school? Do you like school? Did your parents push you into school? I mean, I was yeah, I was in school. I was I was a good student, especially at that time. I was really focused and I did well in school. Yeah. I don't know, I don't know is there a twelve year old that just loves school? Yeah. It's kind of just something you do. And uh I got good grades. Not nothing that nothing that got you excited for the next step though. Not at this point, no. Yeah. Not at that age. Yeah, it wasn't until later in high school that I got really, really focused and excited about actually going to school. What about siblings? None, none. Just you, just me. I have two half sisters on my okay. dad's side, but I'm close with one. The other one, I'm not very close with. Okay, so do you feel like that had anything to do with kind of 
being a self-starter and just trying to figure out how to entertain yourself as a kid growing up? I know for a fact it did. Yeah. You know, it, it was a lot of time of just thinking and, you know, I was a big, I drew a lot. You know, I spent hours, hours and hours at this little desk in my bedroom, just drawing pictures and cartoons. And yeah, so. You know, Definitely like creative you know, type personality. Absolutely. Then. Yeah, Always for sure. A creator. Huh. Yeah, from that age, I remember one time, you know, my dad did one big thing my dad did do is he taught me how to fish and I always loved fishing. Hmm. But for me to fish, I'd have to walk up the street or take the four-wheeler up the street and go fishing. And I always wanted a pond. It's one of those dreams, one of those visions. You yeah, know, yeah. I wanted a pond in the backyard. And uh, one day I said to my mom, I said, can I dig a pond in the backyard? Now, my mom always knew how to feed into these dreams. So she said, the shovel's out back. <laughs> and I did a video on my YouTube, like where I started digging. And I started digging, and I hit bedrock. And I hit bedrock again, I hit bedrock again. And I almost gave up. My mom said, well, you're digging in the wrong place. Like, this is all bedrock. You have to find a place where water sits when all the snow melts. I knew exactly where it was. It was the very back edge of our property. So I went back out there and started digging. All spring and summer, I dug this hole. And then it filled up with water. And I went up the street, I caught a bass and a sunfish, and I put them in there. I'd spend hours back there as a kid. I might've been a little younger at that point, just casting into this marsh of water, <laughs> which was a pond I built and waiting for the fish to bite. Clearly they never did. And yeah, then yeah. that pond dried up. And I'm sure <laughs> I made a good dinner for some little critter, like a raccoon, but That's it's just funny. the act. And you know, when I went back there, this was just last year, I went back to that spot and I looked and you could still see all those parts where I dug into it. And I built like a little fort in the woods yeah. So it was like my compound. Yeah. That's funny, man. It's funny how some kids like they're doers. They're from a young age, you were an action taker, you know, because a lot of kids will dream. A lot of kids will write stuff down. A lot of kids will think about what they want, but few kids will go pick up the shovel. Why, why do you think that you were that kid? I wanted the damn pond. <laughs> <I wanted laughs> there wasn't the another option. It wasn't. Or I wanted option. the skateboard ramp. Yeah. I mean, it was like. You wanted it more than yeah, maybe other kids say like, they want. It's wanted. not going to build itself. It's not yeah. going to dig itself. Yeah. So, Get to work. Yeah. And I loved being outside. And I yeah. remember like the BMX track. I remember I'd build the first jump and I'd, I'd session it all day. Yeah. And then I'd be like, oh, I'm going to build another one. I'm going to build a bank. I'm going to build a, a, you know, just all different features. So every one was just a new addition to my journey. Let's get some context into your age here. Were there a lot of kids your age playing video games or watch TV and stuff like that? Or was everybody playing outside still? Everybody's outside at that yeah. and that. I got to remember I'm 45. So 45. My gosh, was there even video games outside of maybe Atari? I was going to say, because I'm like right at that weird age of like, I feel like I, I think I'm a a younger millennial rather than an older millennial. So I'm like, the, like this weird age where like I still grew up analog days, like very early on, like VCR and floppy disks and stuff like that, or cassette tapes, you know. But then by the time I was in college, pretty much everybody had smartphones. And so it was like, in this weird transition phase. So it sounds like you were just like about a decade before yeah, it was me. a decade before. So I would yeah. have been the decade where I was actually able to witness, you know, uh, desktop computers. And I, okay. was, I had a Commodore, my very first computer. Okay. And then gotcha, gotcha. I had a Mac. You know, in school, we used the original. The iPhones, Macintosh. The yeah, Macintosh. Yeah. Right. So you're talking 1984 now. Yeah. So I, I grew up in that era. Okay. Gotcha. Dude, it was on the Pre-N64, pre-Sega Genesis. Right. I mean, VHS yeah. tapes, I, I wore those things out. And that's yeah. another thing I did a lot. Of, the rewinders. Um, like the movie Rad, like when I was in my BMX phase. I yeah. watched that video, that movie about a hundred times to the point where the VHS tape literally wouldn't play in parts. And that's how I did it with snowboarding and everything else. I would just watch them cycle, yeah. which was an old skateboard film. I probably watched that video a hundred times. I had those tricks in my mind, so dialed. Yeah. So when I went outside, I, it wasn't like 
I was just trying to mimic what I saw in the videos. You forget about those VHSs, man. The tracking would get all messed up and it'd be like lines going up the screen and stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Or that with a few basketball videos that we used But that was my era. I mean, the thought of a cell phone or anything like that, that was so, you couldn't even jump that up. Right, right. It's like the phone was just on the wall and the longer the cord, the more stretched out you got the cord, the better off you were. Yeah. I even oh, remember man. when the first portable phones came out. Dude, that was yeah. like revolutionary for me. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can be in my bedroom. The big old block ones exactly. with like the, the pull it down, pull out the antenna. Yeah, yes, most, of the, most of your audience probably doesn't even know what the heck we're talking about. Yeah. That's really funny. It's, it's, I'm not that old. I mean, 45. That's the, that's the crazy part, right? Is I've, I've, yeah, I feel, feel very, very similar to that. And it's, it's funny when you have conversations with people who are just like a few, probably, probably people that are a few years older than you are that are, that will look at me and then be like, oh, you probably don't even remember this. I'm like, well, actually that's the crazy part about the speed of innovation recently is that I do remember all of that. You know, it was when I was a little kid, but I still remember all of it very clearly. And I still had a bunch of cassettes and VHSs and all that stuff. Like, I remember all that very clearly. It just happened so fast. It, really it went from like playing N64 and GoldenEye or something with garbage graphics to like 10, 15 years later, it's like you're putting yourself inside of video games and people are connected from all over the world playing and they have leagues and tournaments and prize money and all this stuff, you know, that happened like that. See, I don't even understand that. Like I, I'm too busy to play video games or even understand yeah. that. So all that stuff that's going on in the video game world, I, I, it's amazing yeah. that it's come that far, but it's so past. I feel the same way, dude. I don't yeah. even understand it. I have an Xbox and I literally only play it. I have a couple friends for, that I grew up with that they'll come out here to Vegas every once in a while. And whenever we hang out, we'll play some video games. And then other than that, it just sits and collects dust, essentially. It's, yeah. you know, it's like, if I have a decision to be inside, like on a computer or be outside, I, I just want to get outside. I want to yeah. go swim. I want to skate. I want to surf. I want to do something that's outside because that's just how I grew up. So that led into next part of your life story, which ended up being in, in snowboarding, right? So talk to me between like, bridge the gap between like sure. 14, 15, early high school to professional snowboarding. So it, it's a carry on right from there. So it went from BMX to skateboarding. And then from there, my best friend, Jack, one day brought over a snowboard Yeah, and we had it in the garage and I was just hopping around on it. And and this, to be clear too, is like, this had to be pretty beginning of this was all snowboarding, right? Like beginning. This was yeah. like when snowboards weren't allowed on all the hills at the resort. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. In some resorts, they didn't even allow a snowboard. It was yeah. so foreign. Right. But, you know, what I did is that winter, my parents got me a, a, a mogul monster, which is an all plastic snowboard. And we would trek up the hill because uh, up the street, I had this little hill. It was a dirt okay. bike track. And I would ride my snowboard straight down. And then we start building jumps. I mean, that was back before we turned. We just went straight. And the jumps were literally snow with sticks, snow with sticks. That's how we built them. <laughs> I, I still, I think back to that. I'm like, what was the, what was the importance of the sticks? Yeah. In snow? What was the infrastructure? Structural <laughs> fortification of the snowboard jump. Oh man. But, uh, you know, that's how I did it. And then I'll never forget one day, Jack, I, we had no money to go to the resort. You know, Jack yeah. was going to the resort. I wasn't, I was going up the hill. And one day he said, let's go to Kissing Bridge, small little resort. And I said, okay. And my mom you know, gave me the money to do it, which is a huge thing. Yeah. And I remember going up the, the resort, up on the lift, kind of being scared. And my, my, for Christmas, my mom got me a real snowboard, a mm. Burt Lamar. Most people would never even understand what it was, but it was like one of the originals. And I thought I'd be fine. I've been doing this for a while now, and I couldn't even turn. It took me forever to get to the bottom. I was beat up. I was tired. I was really? just sore. Just it rode that different? 
or yeah I, yeah, I thought I knew what I didn't know. I thought I knew how to snowboard, mm. but now you had to turn. Yeah, you, know, you weren't you just point to a jump, and I would have that would have been a bad day if I went straight down that hill. <laughs> and uh, I got to the bottom. I remember sitting in the lodge, thinking I'm not going to go back up. I was soaked, and I'm um, just down there. Jack comes in because he was with some other friends up on the hill. He comes down. He's like, "What are you doing?" And I'm like, "Oh, I'm just I'm just sitting here." Yeah. He's like, "Well, come on, let's go back up." I'm like, "No, I think I'm done for the day." He's like, no, come up. I'm like, dude, I, I couldn't figure it out. Yeah, yeah. And I was, I was, you know, kind of beat up. Totally. Like, and and outside. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Physically beat up. I remember that, the yeah. outfit and everything. And, but he took me up and he, and he taught me some things. And okay. I just linked one thing and I linked another and did the rest of his history. Then it was like by year two, I was competing. I was, dude, I was ready to be a pro snowboarder. And I was watching video after <laughs> video, mimicking and seeing Craig Kelly in the, you know, just the, the best of the best back then, Damian Sanders. And I just wanted that. I wanted yeah. that more than anything else I'd ever wanted in my life. How old were you at, the, at that time? Gosh, it's a good question. Maybe 14. Okay. Gotcha. So you still had a couple of years in high school left when you were, yeah. oh, when yeah. you were pursuing oh, yeah, that. Yeah. So what, what ended up happening post high school then? Are you like focused on college and studies or are you just like all eyes focused well, let me on? Get, let me get there. So there's an important transition that happened. So 16 years old. So what would that be? 11, 12th grade? So yep. Yep. around there, you know, I'd, I'd been working at Jack's farm because his dad had a farm and then I got a real job at a restaurant and they treated me so poorly that I was, I was so depressed. So I remember one day I quit and I came home to my mom thinking she was going to be disappointed that I quit my job. So I had a backup plan. Like I had thought about this and thought about this, this is that visionary stuff. I, I was going to create a clothing line because I love drawing and you know, I, I was big into snowboard, skateboard brands, but I never saw any kids wearing that stuff in school. Yeah. And there was no snowboard shops back then. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm going to create my own shop or my own uh, shirts. So I told my mom, I said, can I you know, start a clothing line called Fat Clothing Company, P-H-A-T? And uh, sure enough, that's where I began. I went to Mr. Mahalski's, he was my art teacher. And I went after school, he printed all the shirts for the school. And uh, we printed the first dozen shirts, sold them out of my backpack, made two dozen, sold those, made three dozen and a dozen hats, had my friends selling them out of their backpacks. And so that was 16 to 17. I did this while I was snowboarding. I was doing, you know, big snowboard contests at that point. Yeah. Wearing all my own stuff. I was manufacturing my own uh, pants and jackets. And uh, I had three seamstresses working for me. But on the road, when I traveled these snowboard contests, I would see shop owners that I was selling my clothes to. I, to me, they had the perfect job, like mm. perfect career is what I would call it. I'd go in there. They were always happy. Yeah. They were living their best day. And then when we wanted to go snowboarding, like they're like, oh, let's go ride. Yeah. I'm like, well, you can just get up and go ride. Yeah. And that was like a foreign thing. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, I, I need that. So I began the process of writing a business plan with uh, the Small Business Development Center and just going through this whole learning experience. This is where school changed for me. So up to this point, I was just a student. Yeah. yeah. Now my teachers became my mentors instead hmm. of teachers. My bookkeeper or the accounting teacher, Mr. Crosley, I would stay after class and he would teach me debits and credits. He would show me how to do just general bookkeeping. Yeah. My business law teacher, uh, Mrs. Uh, I can't, her name eludes me, but she would teach me like, well, you got to be careful with this. And you got to be careful with this and make sure you get this. So every class became like an application to me. And that's when I started escalating. So now that I wanted to open this, this store, it was going to take 70,000 bucks. We penciled it out. And I had a guy that was helping Steve Seminara. And uh, everybody in my family said no. You know, they, my dad said, you're crazy. Get a job at the factory. Nobody wanted anything to do with this. And I almost gave up. And my mom saw this. Now, my mother, the only asset she ever had in her life was the house we lived in. 
she got that in the divorce. It was worth about 72,000 bucks. I needed 70. So she said, well, what's it going to take? I'd gotten a bank to say, if you get a, if you get collateral for this loan, we'll give you an SBA backed loan. Mm-hmm. I said, they only want collateral, but they said my 86 Buick and my KX 125 weren't enough. <laughs> she literally, I'm 17 years old. Now just remember yourself at 17. She put her house up for collateral. Wow. I mean, that's just, thank you, mom. Such a ridiculous sacrifice. And like, of course, I was like, oh my God, yeah. When she yeah. asked if I wanted to do it. Today, I'm like, mom, that's not smart. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I knew nothing about business outside of running a clothing line for a little over a year at that right. point. And here I was, $70,000 in debt, having a skateboard, snowboard shop on my way. Yeah. That's where it began, man. How, how did it go? November 1994, we opened. It was the five years of the blur. It was just growth. And yeah. It was, it was a sensation. Yeah. But there was hard times too. I remember sitting in the back room on the boxes from the shipments that came in saying, I can't make rent tomorrow mm. or how I'm going to pay my employees, crying myself to sleep. Yeah. But I made it. Yeah. Made it after five years. We threw a banger of a party, got broken up by the cops. We all almost all went to jail with 500 people. For like when you It was you like were... when I paid the loan off. Oh, I, gotcha. I crazy party at my gotcha. mom's house. And oh man, <laughs> let's, just, let's just say that's the last party I ever threw at mom's. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh man, that's such a, such an interesting point to bring up too, as a, especially now as a parent, when I look at, when I look at my kids, you know, it's like, when you look back, you go, mom, that wasn't a smart decision, but like for you at that time, that had to have been not only just like a big, you know, I mean, really it was your only option, but also a big vote of confidence that like you were going to make it happen regardless of, Hey, you don't have experience. Yeah. You're only 17. Yeah. You don't have a college degree that says you can do this. You don't have business experience, but your mom watched you your whole life, like start and finish tasks. You know what I'm saying? Like even what we were talking about earlier, like most kids wouldn't pick up the shovel. Okay. Well, the, the ones who did pick up the shovel would have given up after a day or two, but you said you did it all spring and all summer until the snow finally came down and filled it up. And then you put fish in it. You know what I mean? And then that's what told you what you didn't know, which was like, this isn't going to sustain an ecosystem of fish and I'm not going to be able to fish out of this, right? Like it taught you the things you didn't know, but it didn't prevent you from doing the work and figuring it out, you know? So like you have a mom or a a dad or a parent that sees these types of like character traits in their kids. And it's just like, that's the beauty of being a parent, you know, (laughs) is is being able to put your money behind something like that. When that brings, it, didn't what you matter. just said brings me to something that Earl Nightingale said in the strangest secret in the world that, you know, if any of your listeners haven't heard that, go to YouTube and listen to it. He talks about the difference between success and failure. And he talks about it by using a hundred 25 year old kids. They asked if they were going to be successful at the age of retirement. And they all said, yes. But then fast forwarding to retirement statistics by social security says that only five of those 100 would actually be successful. The other 95 would not wow. be financially successful or could not retire is technically what they were saying. And then he goes on to say, you know, I've studied and looked at this and really dug deep into what is the difference between success and failure. Now, remember, we, we haven't gotten past maybe 18 years old in my life. I had no idea about what I'm going to say next, but Earl Nightingale understood it. And he went on to say the difference is creation. The reason those five are successful and the 95 are not is five of them created something. They created their their future, their dream, their passion. They created Mm. the 95% conformed, conformed Mm. to somebody's failed realities, somebody else's failed dream, somebody else's failed life. Are we going to conform or are we going to create? Yeah. Like when you hear my little story here of this fish pond and this BMX track and skateboard ramps and stuff that has 
you know, most of the audience is probably going to, oh, that doesn't even apply. Sure. It absolutely does. Cause I was creating something. I had no idea what I was doing, but I was creating. Yeah. yeah. And I never stopped. Yeah. It's the action, the action that shows you blind spots that points out maybe things that you need to learn or the next step of the process or whatever it is. And I think too many people sit on their hands waiting for this like magical moment of clarity when they don't realize that the action itself is what's going to bring that. It's not just sitting there and thinking about it for the rest of your life. We're in Las Vegas, you know, this is like the city where people come and like, oh, I might get lucky. Yeah. There is no such thing as luck. Yeah. And if there was, luck follows opportunity. Yes. You got to create the opportunity. So people just come, they sit on a slot machine and hope they get lucky. Like there's no, it doesn't exist. Right. Yeah. I like to liken it to, um, to at bats because to me, it's like, could you step up to the plate and the first time knock it out of the park? Yes. That's a possibility. And does it happen to some people? Yes. And do they happen to get an outrageous amount of media attention when it does happen? Yes. Which also tells you, which is why most people think that it is a luck thing because they see the one story that's publicized across the entire nation about this person who started this thing when they were 19 and then it blew up and now they're a billionaire and they're like, see luck, you know, but what you don't see is all of the people who became extremely successful, who'd hit it out of the park on their 784th time up to bat. You know what I'm saying? 784. Right. Like they kept stepping up to bat and most people take two, three swings. They strike out and then they're done. They step up to the plate with the one time. Maybe they do it five times. Maybe they do it 10 times. The question is, what number are you going to stop at? Because like the, to me, it's not a matter of if it's only a matter of when it, it, it zoomed out over a long enough time horizon. Anybody, anybody listening to this can have the success that they're looking for can see the achievement of their dreams or, or the reaching of their goals. It's just that most people aren't stretching that up, stretching that out over a long enough time horizon. And they, and they, they step up to the plate the first few times they strike out and they're like, all right, well, you know, either this doesn't work or I'm not good enough or, you know, like it's a scam. It's one of my favorites, you know, like just writing it off as a scam. into what I do today. Yeah. Like, oh, that's too good to be true. That's yeah. a scam. Okay. It's, a scam. Okay. Yep. it's only been done a couple hundred years. Right. Right. It's a scam, a scam right? though. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so it prevents them from stepping up to the plate again. And it's like, the, the thing is about continuously stepping up to the plate is every time you do it, you're a little bit better than you were the time before. And you're like, ah, oh, that wasn't my pitch. Or, you know, or maybe, hey, that is my pitch. Or I need to sink my back foot. Or I need to like lower my stance. Or I need to swing before the ball gets here. Or like, I need to keep my, on the, like you learn something every single time. And so by the time you are on that 500th time up to bat, you're way more likely statistically to be able to hit it out of the park because you've practiced it over and over and over again. You've learned from the deficiencies that you've had over the last 500 times. And maybe it is a little bit of luck involved when you swing the bat that 500th time, but it's way easier to get lucky you when you're that good. Luck, you know? Exactly. That person's creating the opportunity by swinging and not yep. giving up. It's way easier to get lucky if you've put in the work. Yeah. So, okay. So you leverage all of this into your first business. And then are you doing professional snowboarding at the same time? So when I first opened the store, I was an amateur. Okay. I wasn't a pro yet. I was not getting paid. But shortly thereafter, I, at 19 years old, I became pro. Okay, gotcha. That was my first contract that I got paid that like entered me into the, you know, quote unquote, big leagues of professional snowboarding. And I was only one of three snowboarders to ever go pro out of Buffalo, New York. And I think oh, really? still today that might, there might be two others like Ron Quixote who made it to the Olympics. He was out of Rochester. So let's say that's four. And you could maybe say Ryan Lang was five. Hmm. That's it. Out of all the people that snowboard yeah. in Buffalo, five or six. That's crazy. So what in the hell happened between snowboarding and what you do now 
And how did those, well, all right, so <laughs> how did that follow so into what you do now? Stores. I was snowboarding professional. I was living the perfect life. Like it was literally a dream. And I look back yeah. at that and I'm just like, I mean, they couldn't have gotten any better. Uh, I wasn't making a ton of money, but didn't need money. And uh, I remember driving to my new store in Orchard Park that me and Steve, because Steve had come back into the business, helped me expand it. We opened a, a store right in Ski Town. And uh, I heard about a plane hitting a tower on the drive to work. Mm. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, it must have been a small little Cessna. And then we learned, you know, truly that it was 9-11. Yeah. So when I got to work that day, things were weird. But just a couple months later, the recession had kicked in and my business had dropped tremendously. And I needed to get a job. Like all this dream that I had and all this stuff just wouldn't support the lifestyle. And it wasn't a big lifestyle, but I just, I knew I needed to do something. Yeah. And to me, it was just a bridge. I just needed to temporarily get over. This is my first recession I'd ever seen, which is a very important lesson for anyone listening to this, because I think it's 36 years or younger. If you're that old, you've never seen a recession. It's true. Just sick. Yeah. Because we got one happening right now. Yeah. We are technically by technical, don't listen to freaking talking the LA times. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to redefine what the technical like, definition exactly. of a recession is. It's, like, are you kidding there's me? There's so many stretches being made, bro. Dude, like, it's, I, just, it's just insane. And I, I'm just not, I'm just, I'm, I'm not even going to go there because I'll just get fired up. We are in a recession now Yes, and it's going to get way worse, but this was the first recession in my life. Yeah. So I got to see like how horrible this was. Yeah. So I applied it in Little Caesars where my friend Mike worked. He delivered pizzas and they, they weren't looking for anyone. So I put my resume out. Now, you've kind of laid it out. I didn't have much of my resume. One page. Sure, sure. So when I put it out, nobody called me, but I got some calls and they were Wall Street firms. So the only people that wanted this punk snowboard kid who's never put a suit on, how I wore a beanie most of the time, yeah. was Wall Street. Huh. So I interviewed and my grandma got me a zip up tie and I wore the first suit of my life. And I ended up taking that job. I didn't stay at that firm long. I went to another one, but that was my entry into Wall Street, which was a complete an utter mind F, you know, it just, Oh, totally. Dude, it was it's like culture shock. It was so foreign to me that I had to wear a suit that I couldn't grasp it. Yeah, yeah. And the only way I got through it and my mother remembers these days vividly, a company <laughs> I sold in my store was called Volcom. I still today love this company. Mm-hmm. They made suits for a couple of their athletes. Cause some of the events that their pro athletes would go to, like, I don't know why they made suits, but they made suits. It was yeah. a joke. I bought these suits and I wore these suits to work. But it, it was just enough to bridge that gap of like my snowboard world to my Wall Street world. Yeah. I had a Volcom suit on. <laughs> Nobody knew what the hell it was. Yeah. They knew it was a little different looking and maybe a little more tapered for those days than what anyone else is looking at. Right. But to me, it made it happen. Yeah. And my first year in Wall Street, I made $74,000. So what was supposed to be a temporary job turned into, holy crap, that's more money than I'd ever made. Yeah. Next year was over a hundred and then it just went. North and, and you were selling financial products? Or? Correct. At that okay. time, early on, it was, it was mostly just traditional life insurance, term okay. insurance, you know, just whatever product they wanted me to sell. Yep. And then the second year I got security licensed for, to be called a financial services professional, which is six and 63. So I couldn't sell stocks. Okay. I could do mutual funds okay. and variable annuities and things like that. So I did that. And then shortly thereafter, I, I did go into the, it's called IAR for an RIA, I know it's technical terms, but where I got my series seven stockbroker license. And then I was managing fee-based stuff. And I did that for the rest of my Wall Street career where I managed okay. large portfolios. And what, what, that. Was there a time during that career, which how, how long were you on Wall Street? 16 years. 16 years. Was there a time during that where you really identified 
certain skill sets that maybe you were lacking that you worked on on purpose? Or was it just year after year of constantly doing it that you realized looking back, I'm getting really good at these types of things like sales or persuasive language or networking or social situations? No, I, I, I had a lot more confidence. I would go out. So when I first got there, I was in the bullpen, which is in the center of the, the offices, all the big offices around are the top guys in the middle yeah. are the new guys because they don't last long. Sure. So in the bullpen, you're always wondering, how do I get one of those offices? on the outside? You don't want to be in these little cubicles. It's loud. It's, it's just not a fun place. Yep. And I remember watching them and they'd get in about 8.30 in the morning. They'd leave for two hours for lunch and then they would be gone by 4.35 o'clock. So I said, all right, if I want one of those, the path to get that seems to be just do everything they're not willing to do. Yeah. Get there at seven, get all my paperwork done. When the day starts, do all the meetings and everything else we had to do. Work through lunch, make phone calls, and people answered the call, which was unbelievable. And then when pe- they leave, hit the phones and then go see people at their kitchen tables. Mm. And that's what I did. And I became number one in the new org. I became number three in the entire office in a short period of time. And I, wow. was, I was crushing it. Yeah. That was uh, 2000. Gosh, I don't know, probably 2005, six, seven, eight. I was, I was doing really, really well. Yeah. But I became a good salesperson. I cared about my clients more than I think a lot of people did. Yeah. A lot of people were focused on the paycheck, which I'm not going to lie. Like I, I was now hooked on the money side. Of course. Yeah. The fancier cars. And I wanted to be, you know, the top guy in the office. So I had that ego thing going, which, you know, will get me in trouble later as we get into the story. But I think just the willingness and my work ethic to do what they weren't willing to do got me there. God, such a huge principle, man. That's, I remember hearing that, I think for the first time when I was knocking, I used to do door to door for a few years uh, when I started my career. And that was something that one of my managers told me one time, like, if you want to live a life that nobody else can live and you have to be willing to do what nobody else is willing to do. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And it's just like, I like things that make sense to me. And that was something that just made a hundred percent sense. It was just like, oh, that's why it's called the 1%. It's not necessarily just because they make more money. It's because they're willing to do what 99% of other people are not willing to do, which is why they tend to get the result that 99% of people won't get because they put in the work that they won't do. So all I really got to do is ask myself, what's the thing that nobody else is willing to do? And am I willing to do that? Because if that's the case, then all I have to do is do that thing. And you, again, stretch that out over a long enough time horizon. You tend to get the things that you're looking for if you put in the work to get those things. It just, it turned this like, abstract idea of success into something that was very like in the dirt for me, which made a lot of sense. Oh, I mean, there's a lot to that. And I think one thing that helped me a lot in Wall Street is, you know, yes, I I was outworking them, but there was something in me that just drove me so hard to want to be number one. Yeah. And there's this guy, Mark, who was every year number one, you know, every year. And I just wanted it. Yeah. I never got it. I'll be honest with you. I, I never became truly number one. There was one year I won agent of the year, which technically means I'm number one. It was because he gave it to me because, you know, I was working out of his office at that point. Uh, He's gotcha. like, oh, you know, I, I was there. Just, you know, let's yeah. get Chris there. And I was close, but I, I wasn't. And I always wanted that. Yeah. And uh, it, was, it was hard not getting it. <laughs> but I ended up leaving that firm in 2016 anyway and going off on my own. Okay. So that kind of brings us up to speed at this point. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors 
according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Let's uh, let's move into the next phase, which I know next you said had to do with ego. And, yeah. 2008 and nine would be the next phase, which is okay. when I lost it all. Okay. Um, which is when a lot of people lost it all. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was uh, flipping a couple of houses, 2006 and 2007. 2008, I still had my retail stores, still snowboarding professionally and still doing Wall Street at a high level. Oh, really? Yes. So wow. There was a lot going on. Yeah. A lot of directions. No I remember I'd work at the office. I'd rush over to the shop, strip my suit off in the back office, put my snowboard, you know, my just street clothes on. Yeah. And I'd, I'd work at, you know, until the store closed. And I remember I bought a strip mall, two buildings down. It was a dilapidated paint store. And this is 2008 that I bought this because mm. I didn't want to keep paying this guy rent. I know I, I didn't know. And you know, yeah, of course, hindsight. At that yeah. level, yeah, but I should have. You think so? I should have saw the signs because mm. the signs were no different than the signs were, you know, back a couple of months ago. And I've been calling this thing for a couple, a couple of years now. Mm-hmm. But back then I had no knowledge of it because I was just listening to everybody else. I was conforming to what they told me to tell people. Yeah. So I got blindsided. I was 370 grand into the strip mall with a private loan from a guy at 15% interest. Oof. And the whole, oh yeah, and the, and the whole market melts down in for the great recession. Dude, it hit me like a Mack truck. And I remember it got to the point where I had, my retail storage dropped up. My phone just shut off at the Wall Street. You know, Wall Street, nothing was happening there. Wow. You know, I was working harder than I ever was and making no money. And um, I had one payment left in my savings. I had exhausted my 401k. Everything was gone. And to, to these guys and these, this group that I borrowed the money from, there's the right people to borrow from the wrong. <laughs> yeah. They weren't the right people. <laughs> they wouldn't have just taken the plaza. Yeah. I might have went missing couple fingers go away. You've seen the movies. Yeah, yeah. That would, that's what would have happened. But um, I remember coming home one night, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, Larissa, had just moved in. And I remember sitting her down and I said, sweetie, I need your help. I need your help paying the mortgage. I need your help paying the utilities. And my friend Pete's going to move into that bedroom down the hall. I didn't even think that I only had probably had a 10% shot of her sticking around after saying something like that. Yeah. yeah. And she, she obviously liked me because she did. Yeah. Wife, but like that was a difficult thing. And then we recouped there. She was working for Bank of America. So she had a steady job and we were barely scraping by, but I managed, 
I ended up getting uh, that strip mall rented far enough where uh, a bank would take me out of it. Mm. So they, they refinanced nice. it. It was, you know, what, is, what is that thing? Skin of my skinny. By the skin of your teeth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever that is. So in 2009, I, I was reading a lot of Warren Buffett stuff. Okay. I always said buy low. Everything was buy low, right? Yep. Well, real estate was low. So I started buying real estate again. In 2009, I bought apartment buildings. I didn't stop until 2014. I got up to 36 units. Was and anybody at that time telling you that you were crazy for buying real estate? I, people were saying I was crazy in, in my office. Yeah. You know, so like the, the normal financial advisor said, why are you messing with that? Why don't you just focus? Like, yeah. there's always a focus thing. Like, you're doing too many things, you know, just focus, focus, yeah, focus. Yeah. And I don't know why I wanted real estate, but I, I actually I do. All my wealthiest clients that still made, there was this one guy. He was my client. But he didn't hardly have any money with me. He was a super wealthy guy. Yeah. He was all, all apartment buildings. Yeah. And a couple other guys that I saw go through the recession, totally unharmed. Mm. Unharmed. They were the only guys buying full snowboard packages. Success leaves clues, man. Yes. Yeah. So I started saying, these guys are doing that. And they made it through. And they're making more money now than I got to get into real estate. Right. So I started studying, reading some books, and built a pro form. And that's how I was buying this real estate. And I got up to 36 units by 2014, which some people wow. would say, holy cow, that's successful for a young guy. But I made some major mistakes. I was highly leveraged. Mm. Okay? I was putting down the least amount of capital that you possibly could. 20%. Okay. Yep. So I was taking money, you know, I was probably doing some things right, taking loans from my 401k, buying the properties, uh, leveraging credit cards to, yeah. to do the rehab. 0% credit roll. cards. Yep. Yep. Using rent roll to pay it. And everything was fine until I brought the 37th property to that same bank. It was the same bank the whole time. And they said no. Hmm. And after they said no to that, now that opened the can of worms because my debt to income ratio was out of whack by bank principles. And they froze. I had a line of credit too, actually. And they froze both. Really? That was it. No now, way. I didn't know this then, but that bank was being bought by a big conglomerate. Gotcha. So they were thinning out their balance sheet. They were getting rid of risky loans. And I was risky. So they froze the line of credit. After they froze the line of credit, I couldn't continue renovations. I got behind on my mortgages. They called one of them. Game over. Huh. Had to sell them all. Wow. And then we, me and Larissa had bought our dream house, 171 Radcliffe. It was a beautiful house that we had renovated. It was like everything I ever wanted up to that point. And yeah. I had to sell that. And I remember sitting in that bedroom, like when, when everything was falling apart. I remember sitting there. Larissa had, you know, was leaving me. And uh, I listed my bed, my dressers, everything in my bedroom. I listed it on Craigslist. Mm. And I remember the guy coming and walking my bed out and staring at an empty bedroom, mm. realizing I had it. And I just lost it all. Yeah. And I went to Thailand for almost a month to try to clear my head. It was the hardest time in my life. I bet. It allowed me to think about a lot of things. And what, what did you do in Thailand? Anything specific? Like rode any- elephants, pet tigers, meditated a lot. Yeah. I was deep into meditation back then. Yeah. And this was 2004. Ish. Yeah, this has been 14. Okay. Absolutely would have been. So now you're single again. Yep. And nothing to your name, essentially. No. Except for I moved into one of my apartments. You moved into I still one. Still had one building. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Units, yeah. Gotcha. I had a partner, and that's the reason that one didn't have to go. Gotcha. I had a partner, and then I ended up just she allowed me to rent one of the units. Got it. Got it. What do you do from there, man? This is before you answer, I just want to give a little bit of context because this is like this is one of those things where people, they don't see the 20 years before the success. They just see like, oh, Chris is doing so well. And, you know, lucky Chris and, you know, all this stuff that goes into it. But then like you get the story and it's like, oh, wow. You know, started with nothing, built up something, lost it. 
then started over with nothing and then built up something and then lost it and started over and then built up something and lost and then lost everything. And on like a third restart. And now you've gotten to the point where you have what you have now. So there's, there's a lot to be learned in those valleys that will take you into the next mountaintop. Um, so I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about it's that. It's so simple. And I don't know how valuable this is going to be for everybody, but I've done it enough times. You have to realize that the only way in life to, to actually fail, the mm-hmm. only way you can truly fail at anything, I don't care what it is, is to quit. Yeah. The only thing I did different than the person that truly failed was they quit and I didn't. I wanted to. Oh my God, don't, don't for one second think I didn't want to quit. Dude, every time I wanted to just throw the towel in. Yeah. I remember my mom, my mom who believed in me saying it during that period of time saying, Chris, can't you just be normal? Can't you be content? Just, just work yeah, you know, for get a job. the Wall Street yeah. firm. Just, just, well, yeah, I had that Wall Street job. I was doing okay. She's like, just focus on that. But I just, I don't know why there was something in me that just wanted more. Yeah. yeah. And I wasn't going to get it in Wall Street because I was always somebody's bitch. Yep. I was always working for the company. And, and that was all. Well, like I said, success leaves clues when you're looking at these successful client portfolios or whatever, they're not on wall street selling annuities. No, they're not. They're doing the complete opposite of everything, but I hadn't learned that yet. Yeah. See up to this point, I I hadn't learned enough. I just didn't quit. Hmm. That's all. The next phase is where everything changed. This is 2014. Remember I'm in my apartment. Larissa had had kind of come back into the mix now. So we're, we're back. We're we're getting back. Okay. Okay. And, um, I get a postcard Normally, I would have just thrown these out. I don't know why I looked at this one. It was like a bigger one. It said, come to this seminar. It was like a Doug Hopkins, I think it was, uh, seminar. Come to learn how to flip houses. Yeah. Flip it over. If you come, we'll give you a free iPod shuffle. Now, this time I had been done. A lot. <laughs> I had nothing to lose. But I now had an iPod shuffle to get just for going there. Yeah. And I'll never forget that day. It was April. And it was raining and miserable out. And I said to Larissa, hey, do you want to go to this thing? Like, they're giving iPod shuffles away. And she's like, no, you go. I remember sitting in the very back thinking, I'm just going to wait till they, you know, when they say, Hey, you know, yep. it didn't matter if you bought something, grab my shuffle and gone. Yeah. I'm like, come on. <laughs> exactly. but then two guys walk up on stage. I'll never forget this moment, man. This is seared. Everybody has these moments in their life where it doesn't matter what happens. You'll never forget that defining moment. Mike and Greg walk up on stage, start talking about money right out of the hole. Now remember I'm the wall street guy. So I perk up on, wait, wait, what? But when they got into it about five minutes in, I realized I knew nothing about what they were talking about. Hmm. No idea. Interesting. No idea. They're talking about the, like being the bank and Greg's showing you how to, how to buy real estate with no money down by using other people. It was this whole thing about money and I knew nothing about it. And I'm like, holy crap. And I remember before Greg got off stage, he said, the ultimate in real estate is being the bank. It's the first time I'd ever heard this in my life. No, I, no concept of what he was talking about, but it was yeah. the first time I'd heard that. I rushed to the back. It was 1995 or something like that for this next level. Swipe my card, which I didn't have this money. Larissa was pissed I bet. when I told her. But she wasn't so much pissed that I spent two grand. Yeah. That was part of it. She's like, that's your problem. She was pissed because she had to go to Rochester, take a day off from Bank of America, which her, her father was her manager. And she had to go to this thing with me because I paid for both. <laughs> Without asking. <laughs> Folks, man, careful with that one. But we, we went to this thing and did that. It was just where everything changed Yeah, because I had hope. I had seen something that like I'd never learned about before. Yeah, And uh, that was the next phase where literally my focus, almost 180 degrees changed 
to now I had a path. Now I had a driven goal. And that goal very quickly turned into now I want a TV show. Mm. Nothing had changed. I, I had sold the strip mall at this point. I had sold the stores at this point. So I was just doing Wall Street. I was doing real estate, but I'd lost all that. And I wasn't flipping any houses. So now I was going to flip houses. And uh, that's what we did. And shit, man, we flipped a lot of houses. Yeah. Um, you know, it's led to a TV show. I remember watching Tark and Christina get on that stage at yeah. one of those summits for this, this thing that I paid for, which was 27 grand. When you, actually, I, you know how those work. Oh, yeah. Well, come to this free one. We'll give you yeah. an iPod shuffle. Oh, yeah. it's two grand to go to the next one. Yeah. Oh, now it's $29,000. Yeah. For the base package. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I ended up spending yeah. 85 Of course. Yes, you did. Yeah. The 27, oh, that just got you a little box <laughs> yeah. full of DVDs. Like, then the next one, when you want to go to Mexico to be around Greg oh, and Mike yeah. and spend time with yeah, them, yeah. that was another town. Yeah, right. We all know that. <laughs> but I did it, you know, and, and, and it's funny, like people are like, oh, that's so stupid. No, it's the smartest freaking thing I ever did in my life. But that, that's the whole thing, dude, is like, that's the kind of stuff we're talking about earlier where people call it scam. You know, like immediately they're like, as soon as people ask for money, they're like, scam. And it's like, whoa, 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 wait a second. Just because success rate is low doesn't mean that the program is a scam. Everybody wanted you know? something handed to them. That's why. Exactly. Like that. And, and, and if they knowledge. sold it that way, then shame on them. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Like, cause there are, I'm not saying that there's that's no scam artists out there. The FTC, uh, that's why everybody got shut down by the FTC. The same opportunity. But correct. Exactly. But then there are people like you who came in and did the thing. And the bottom line is like, I've probably wasted tens of thousands of dollars wasted in terms of like, I invested in something that I thought was going to work out and it didn't work out the way that I wanted it to work out. Sure. And, but, my point saying that is I don't regret a penny of any of that wasted money because every time I put money down on me, it's another vote of confidence in myself that I'm going to make it. So and if it's 80,000, if it's 150,000, it's like, I know my goals are so far beyond a hundred grand in terms of what I want to do in the next 30 to 50 years, you know, knock on wood that I'm around that long. So if I'm limited by the thought that I might lose a fraction of a percentage of what I want, I'm never going to get to that point. You know what I'm saying? Like it just like pe people blow my mind when it's like, Oh, well that program, it's $2,000. It's like, you just told me that you want to make a million dollars next year and you're making 75,000 this year. How do you expect to make a million dollars? If you think that two grand is a lot of money. You know what I mean? Like, the, how, where, where are we going here? What are we doing? People's you know? mindsets are broken because of the pre-programming that we've gotten our whole life. And it's not, yeah. you know, when, when I say the word money, your audience is going to have a different feeling. If I say the word mom, different feeling for everybody. Love, colonoscopy. Every one of those words resonates a different feeling in everyone listening to this. But I can tell you the people that thought negatively when I said money, because they had a bad experience. Their parents had no money, like mine didn't. And they grew up, kind of bastardizing money. Yeah. But then some people had a good warm feeling when I said the word money. Hopefully not when I said the word colonoscopy. <laughs> but money is because they were growing up in a family that maybe had money that was positive and always said positive things about money and treated it as a tool. Yeah. The difference between those two people is nothing other than mindset. Mm -hmm. It's not the haves and the haves nots because there's miserable people that have lots of money. Totally. It's a tool. And how we use the tool is the only thing that matters. And I'm, you know, doing a TEDx talk in October and it's the hardest speech I've ever written in my life because it's a letter to my daughter. Hmm. It's now two. And it's a letter to my daughter about the six laws of wealth. Hmm. And I can't get through it without bawling my eyes out because if somebody had done that for me, my life would be so much further ahead. Not that I'm in a bad place, but my life would be so much further ahead. All these little stepping stones, like two grand, 27 grand, 85 grand, like it's going to resonate differently with each person, but yeah. nothing in my life could have happened and got me where I'm at if those little things didn't happen. Yeah. All the way up to the 
that guy Mike that I was talking about, he had a, a show on, e, or on uh, A&E, and he's one of the reasons we had our TV show on HGTV. But I remember being in Salt Lake City with him, and I borrowed money from him for the flips because he lent me a lot. And I remember sitting there at the Cheesecake Factory right at the downtown mall, and I said to Mike, I said, Mike, how do you lend all this money? I knew he, I knew he had money, but I just wanted to know. And he says, well, I lend it from my, my own bank. And I sat back, and I'm like, dude, you got a bank? I'm like, why are we in cheesecake? Let's go to the bank. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. come on, let's go, man. And he's like, no, 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 I don't have a bank. I have a, this, I set up my own banking system. And I'm like, what are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, I'm listening. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm like, what are you talking? Tell me. And he's like, well, you know, this guy, Brent, helped me set up a whole life policy instantly. And I don't even think he got it out of his, word, out of yeah. his mouth. Whole life policy. Yeah. From I'm somebody like, that sold term. It, yeah. it, it was just like, <laughs> like, I had that ring in my ear and I didn't hear anything else he said. And I remember leaning into him because now I put the, the advisor hat back on. I'm yeah. Like, <laughs> let me tell you a little something about let whole me, life let me insurance. Teach you like, let me drop a bomb on here. Whole life doesn't work that way, dude. You can't put money in a whole life and take that money right back. Because he had he'd give me a little line, like, you know, I yeah. put money in the whole life, I immediately take it out and I lend it to you. And I I make money on the money I put in there, even though I just took it all out and gave it to you. Yeah. And instantly my bullshit meter goes up. I'm a Wall Street guy. I don't uh, know what whole scam life is. It's a terrible place to put your money. <laughs> Trust me, you should invest your buy term and invest the difference. And I, I'll manage it for you, Mike. Yeah. Like, come on, dude, let me manage your money. Right. So he went on to tell me about this. And he, the, the thing he said that got me over my hump is he says, most people don't know how to do this. He says it requires Brent, he kept referring to this guy, Brent, to take a reduction in his commission. And that reduction is the amount of money that I have to use that in a normal whole life you wouldn't. And then he went on to say that this is what banks do, bully. Now, instantly, I knew what bully was because it was a buzzword around the, you know, the companies, bully, 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 bank-owned life insurance. So I knew what that was. And I kind of figured bully, when a bank bought a whole life, it wasn't the same as when I bought a whole life. Mm-hmm. So when he said that, I was like, now I'm willing to listen. I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe there's something I don't know. Yeah. So he keeps telling me about this. We spent the next half hour of him telling me what he knows, how he uses it. But the biggest thing I couldn't get, I couldn't rationalize with is, Mike, you put a hundred grand into this thing and then you take... 90 out and you lend it to me, but you still got a hundred grand in that account earning interest. Cause then your whole life paid dividends and interest. And, and I'm like, how? Wait, how? And, I, and, and, and I, he didn't know. He, he truly didn't know. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I don't know. Talk to Brent. Yeah. He did. I said, talk to Brent. <laughs> so he gave me Brent's number. I called Brent in a hyper panic. <laughs> Cause I was so excited now. And I'm like, Brent, Brent, I'm an advisor. Blah, blah, blah. I don't even probably couldn't even understand me. And he says, have you watched the video? I remember that on the phone and I'm, I'm just paused. I'm like, what, what video? He's like, well, there's a 90 minute video you have to watch before we can have a call. But once you watch the video, we'll do a call. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't have 90 minutes, dude. Yeah. Like I'm an advisor. Like, just come on, just get me, get up, get me going on this. Right. So I did watch that video on a Sunday. I took a big cup of coffee thinking this is going to suck. Yeah. Put it down and I hit play and I went by in like 15 minutes, four pages of notes. And I swear to God, it was the closest I ever came to seeing Jesus. <laughs> so much. And a 90 minute video came to light things that I should have known up to this point, 14 years in wall street. I should have known all these yeah. and none of them, Yeah. but it became clear as to why I didn't know them. It became crystal clear why this has been used forever, why I didn't know what this was, but it came clear that this is what I had to master right there. I called Brian, said, I'm done with the video. How do I meet you? He says, well, I'm going to be in Mexico uh, teaching a three day summit, but it's this weekend. I don't know if you hang on, Brian. Larissa, we're going to Mexico, pack your bags, I swear to God. And we were off to Mexico. And uh, I spent three days there sitting in the front row, just being a sponge. Yeah. And from that moment, 
nothing's ever been the same. I have used this banking system that's been around for hundreds of years. Everything I do in my life, every piece of real estate is funded through my bank, which just for the record, like when I say my bank and your audience needs to know it's that stupid, specially designed and engineered whole life that I just told you about. Yeah. But it's the concept of what I use. It's called the infinite banking concept. So I put money in the policy, but I never leave it there. I immediately take it out and make it go to work. In that letter to my daughter, the second lesson I teach her is once you learn how to save, because it's a 10% rule, save 10% of everything you make, pay yourself first. Second one is your money has to work for you. Don't ever leave your money sitting in somebody else's account. Don't ever leave your money sitting. And when I say that, I mean a bank. Yeah. Uh, don't ever leave your money sit at all. Banks don't. Banks move money and they make it work for them. So you make your money work for you. So then I started moving money. And first I paid off credit cards with it. I'd put money in my policy, small amounts. My first policy was 230 bucks. People are like, oh, how much you got to put in? My first one was only 230. It's embarrassing, but that's all I had. And then I got up to 500 and then a thousand and it's climbed from there nine policies later. But I would put the money in three months later, I would take it out and I would pay down my credit card, smallest balance is the biggest. Then I would take the amount that I used to give to Visa or whatever credit card, and I would put it back in my bank, my mm. policy as a loan repayment. And I just kept doing this. It was a circle. And you know, when, when I explain this, all I do is I just say, just imagine if you wanted success with money, imagine if it was as simple as changing one thing. And I got a $2 bill just because that's what I had. But imagine if you wanted to become wealthy, you understand money, you just got to change one thing and that's where the money goes first. So I take the money I used to save over here and I take, take it and I put it over here in that policy. Now I'm earning 6%, okay? Five to 6% depending on the company. But that's not, no one's getting rich off five or 6%. Then I immediately take that money back out. But when I take that money out, I didn't take my money. So this is where I got confused with Mike and where your audience is probably confused. Well, wait a second. If you, if you put money in and you take it out, how can it not be your money? Right. Because it's the insurance company's money. And the insurance company made me a promise contractually. They said that someday when I die, they're going to pay a death benefit. They didn't say I have to wait till I die to use that death benefit. Mm. This is the thing I never understood. Yeah. The insurance company will let you use your death benefit anytime you want with no questions, with no, you just click a button. Here's, here's part of your death benefit up to the amount of cash you have in your account as collateral. Mm. And when you do that, you're holding the money in your hand. So now that money can go to work for you anywhere you want it to. I was just paying credit cards off with it, but I never stopped earning interest and dividends on every penny that I put into it. Mm. So I've literally tapped into, I didn't know this then, but Albert Einstein's theory of compound interest, yeah. the eighth wonder of the world. Uninterrupted. Uninterrupted. Yeah, yeah. Because my money's never interrupted. Never for the rest of my life, every dollar I put through that stupid and I keep saying stupid policy because I want your audience to know that I think they're stupid too, but it's the only vehicle on earth that can do this. Yeah. Every dollar I put in there, month over month, year over year, you know, decade over decade, continues to earn compound interest, no matter if it's even, even if I take it all out, which I yeah. do, I never have any money in my policies. Yeah. I get that money and I make it move. But let's go back to the process. So now I paid down that credit card. But to be clear real quick, when you say you never have any money in your policies, the money's oh, still all there. All my money's in there. Correct. But, it's yeah. all but, the, but the insurance company's like, we're going to give you money up to the amount of money you have in the policy. Yeah. Like and we're going to use the money that you have in the policy. I $800,000 in all of my nine policies. Yeah. I have 800000 earning interest and dividends. Yeah. But there's not Earning five to six percent a year. Yeah. There's not one penny of that 800000 that isn't out working a second time. Yeah. Because I've taken it out and leveraged that, that benefit. Doing flips or doing multifamily. I, or... I lend a ton of money through my private money club, that, that dating site for money, just private lending. Um, I, the copy machine in my office is funded by my banking policy. Why would I lease a copy machine when I can buy it with my policy and then pay my policy back the same amount I'd pay the leasing company? I mean, I have beautiful cars. I have a G63 and then a, a GLS 550 for my wife, like both. And that's big payments. Yeah. I still make monthly payments on a car, but guess what? 
payments go back to my policy, but it's taken me time to get there. You know, it didn't start like that. Explain the car thing. So you go out and you buy whatever, let's say a hundred thousand dollar car. So you're taking money out of now I had to have the hundred grand in my sure, policy. Sure. So if you were gonna buy a hundred thousand dollar car, you'd have to have a hundred thousand in your policy. Right. So I take the hundred thousand out as a loan. Right. Okay. So the insurance company advanced me part of my So you're debt. paying cash paid to cash the dealer. To the yeah. This is where people kind of I don't understand. I'm so far down the rabbit hole and I understand this so well that it's yeah. hard for me to comprehend this next thing I'm gonna say, but your audience will fight this because it's against everything they've been taught. Yeah. So I take the hundred grand out, I buy the car. But I figure out from the car dealership before I pay for it how much they would charge me monthly for that car. Hmm. So they might say like the, the G63, maybe 2,500 bucks a month. Okay? Yeah. So they tell me my payment would be 2,500 over six years at this interest rate. Hmm. Perfect. And then they say, okay, would you like to start the financing paperwork? No, I'm going to pay cash for it. Loan from policy, pay cash for the vehicle. Then I take that same $2,500 a month payment that I would have paid to their finance company. And I set up a bill pay and it goes right back to my bank. Got it. Because I'm, I'm operating the bank. And there's never going to be a day in my life that I'm going to steal from my bank because I wouldn't steal from Bank of America. I wouldn't steal from Wells Fargo. I'd go to jail. Yeah. So I'm not going to steal from my bank. And why would I pay my bank any less than I would have paid their bank? Got it. So if their bank was going to charge $2,500, i am going to pay myself $2,500. But the thing is, is I'm in control of them. Yeah. If I don't want to pay $2,500, one month I have a hard and time. And the hundred grand is still in there earning five Doesn't to six percent interest. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Hundred grand still making interest and dividends. Yeah. I'm just taking a loan from the insurance company. They're giving me my death benefit. They're charging me an interest rate on that. But I'm making more than what they're charging, so I'm making a spread. That's how banks make money. Yeah. They so, pay you so one, they charge five. I guess that's a, probably a good question Very to important. to ask: is what what type of in, what type of interest rates are you typically paying on the money that you're pulling out? So my policies, because they're older, are five percent. Okay. Because they're pre seventy seven oh two. That doesn't doesn't even matter. The the, the rules change this year. So anyone that started now, they're going to earn five five point two to six percent. That's what the insurance companies are paying, and they're going to pay four. But they're making 5.2 or 6 compounding and paying for simple. Hmm. So people would have to understand that compound interest always trumps simple. You could actually pay 6% simple interest and only earn 4% compound interest and still make more than, than you're paying. Over a long enough period of Over time? Over a long enough yeah. period of time. It's usually about five years. Yeah. Actually, about the fourth year, you start to turn the tide. But you're not. You're, you're making a spread out of, the, you know, out of the hole because you're making, just use one company, okay, the big one that I have, six, and I'm paying four. So that's a 2% spread. Got it. But that's 2% this year. Right. Next year, spread goes up. And 2% higher on compounding than yeah. simple. And the next year it's more, and the next year it's more, and the next year it's more. And I don't have to work harder, longer, <laughs> or do take on any risk to do that. So, just math. so on the car example, you take a hundred grand out, mm-hmm. pay cash. Yes. You have to, like, is there a payment schedule on paying that money back to the policy? No, the insurance company will never ask you to pay that loan back ever. They don't care if you ever pay it back. They're going to get- But you do have to pay the interest. You have to pay the interest every year. Interest only. That's correct. Annual. Yes. Got it. Never. It's not monthly. Just do bare minimum. You just pay interest. So it's just like, okay, so I I took a hundred grand out. That money's on the street. Yep. But come my annual renewal, I owe you guys four grand. Yes. If I'm 4% interest on the hundred grand. How much did you make? Yeah. Right, right, right. Minimum six. Well, right, right, right. So you made six, you got to give back four. Does that suck? Right. (laughs) No. In the next year, if you make, you know- 62 and you only got to pay four. Does that suck? And the right. next year, you make 65 and you got to pay four. Like you right. see what I mean? It's just, it never stops. Right. I've been doing this a long time. So my policies are extremely mature. Yeah. I mean, every one of my policies, my spread 6% or greater. Mm. So if I, if you came to me and you said, Hey man, I need to make payroll. I need, you know, 10 grand. If I gave you 10 grand and you never paid me back, it wouldn't affect anything because <laughs> I'm still making more 
like I want it back eventually, but like, yeah, yeah. see, it just doesn't, once you get into this and you start doing this, the first couple of years are the, the hard years. But once you get into it, it just gets better and better and better. And it doesn't take luck. It doesn't take the market. It doesn't take anything. Like the recession happens. Nothing changes in mind. Yeah. You know, that's why Walt Disney used this. He started Walt Disneyland using a loan from his policy, doing the exact same thing. Really? Rockefeller's Rothschilds, their family bank. You've heard this a million times. Why is it every generation's wealthier? Money never leaves their family. It never, it's always in their control. Where do you think it is? Insurance companies, different level of what, than what I'm sure, sure. higher level. But I mean, I hate even using this word, but Biden, like right now, you know, he uses this. Look it up. Yeah. He's got seven of these policies that is on record. He's probably got more. He funds his political campaign. So did McCain. Mm. John F. Kennedy did the same thing. So like, are all those people stupid? Yeah, well, the, the one stat that I remember, I think it was you who was speaking at an event um, recently that I was at, a mastermind that we're both in, where you said banks own more whole life policies than like every other asset that they own every combined or something. In real estate, they own more yeah. whole life than they do all the land in the buildings that they own. And this is what we're talking about at the beginning, right? Success leaves clues. When you start looking at the Rockefellers, one of the most successful families of all time, and realize that that's the way that they protect their wealth against delineation of future generations and bad decisions of people in the future, right? And then you look at all of the banks, which are the smartest money managers in the world, and they own more whole life policies. It's like, huh, well, maybe there's something to this, <laughs> this whole life can thing. Look it up. I mean, they can, they can look up how much they own. Go to um, fdic.gov okay. and type in BOLI, B-O-L-I, Bank Owned Life Insurance. The top five, and this is old, this is I think two years old already. The top five banks have $75 billion in whole life. We do all the banks in the country. We tried figuring it out the other day. I just don't have a calculator. We'll hold enough num- numbers. It's in the trillions. Yeah. So is it because banks are stupid or do they seriously know something we don't know? Right. Of course right. they know something. They understand compound interest. So did Albert Einstein. Those that understand it, earn it. Those that don't pay it. We've been brought up to pay it. Yeah. yeah. I just turned the coin and I just said, I'm just going to. So from a personal finance perspective, if somebody's listening to this and they're like, man, I don't really know anything that you're talking about. And there's a lot of terms you're saying that go over, going over my head, but I got, you know, I got six months of a rainy day fund in my bank account and I got another 10 grand to play with. And I just don't know what to do. And I don't want to make any dumb decisions. Where, where should they start? Like, is it, is it a good idea to keep a rainy day fund in your personal bank account or should you immediately start buying? You should definitely keep a rainy day fund. I mean, I never keep more than $10,000 in someone else's bank. I just don't. Okay. But I think anyone should at least have three, maybe even six months of an emergency fund just sitting in a checking account. And I know that's not wise to do, but just until you learn this and really understand how to do this, like go slow, go slow into it. Yeah. You know, how much money are you saving in your 401k? How much money are you saving in your checking and savings? Start with that. Yeah. Just change where that money goes first. You're saving 500 bucks a month, save 500 bucks a month over in this account. Yeah. Hey, if you're saving $50,000 a year, save $50,000 a year over in this. If you got 50 grand in the bank account and you're saving 500 bucks a month, dump 50 grand in and save 500 a month. Like it's just changing where your savings goes because I'll tell you, the bank isn't paying you more than one or 2%. The insurance company is paying you 5.2 to six. Yeah. Which one's better? Yeah. Any yeah. Questions? I mean, <laughs> that just from the simplest standpoint, like yeah. why would you not do this? I have is it, is it just as accessible? You put the money in, you can immediately take it out in the first 30 days. Mm. Most people can take it out immediately in the next couple of days. We just say 30 to pad the coin. Sure, sure, sure. You know, because I don't want somebody putting it in and trying to take it out the next day and be like, wait, that Christmas. But I can't pay my mortgage. Yeah. Right. It's checked it and cleared, dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, just because you got checks in the checkbook doesn't mean there's money in the bank. Like yeah, yeah. your check has to clear. Right, right, right. Um, you know, and it's just like, so we say 30 days. Okay. Got it. But, uh, yeah. It's, it, and it's when people are like, well, what do I got to do to get my money out? 
click a button. Yeah. They're going to ask you four questions. Is this money laundering? Is this part of a divorce decree? Some other question. And then where do you want the money to go? <laughs> it ends up right there 36 hours later or less. Most people see it the next day. So basically most people listening is just like very practical. Keep your rainy day fund, have your money in your checking account that pays your bills or whatever. But then beyond that, basically anything else, put it into yeah. whole life. And let, you hit something. A lot of people, when they hear this, like, oh, I'm going to change everything and put it all over here and I'm going to pay my bills out of this. No, 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 no. This money is the money that you would use to send to work somewhere. Accrual Buy money. real estate, yeah. to pay off your credit card debts, to buy a car, to put a down payment on a house, to whatever, invest in the stock market, invest in crypto. Yeah. Imagine all those things you can still do, but what if you just change where the money went first and then you did it? Yeah. Now, instead of making money once on crypto and making money once on real estate, you're not making money twice, both times, and you did nothing to change. Work. Nothing different. Yeah. That's it. Right. It is that simple. And again, you know, when people are like, well, how do I learn this? How did I learn? 90 minute video that changed my life. Yeah. Go to my website and watch the 90 minute video. And that's how you learn. What, uh, what's the site? Just my name, Chris Noggle, N-A-U-G-L-E.com. Chris Noggle.com. If you've been listening so far, you've been enjoying what we're talking about, please go give Chris a follow, check out some of the stuff that he's doing. And then real quick, before we finish up here, I know we're coming up, uh, coming up close to an hour, I think. What advantages, if any, would a potential business owner or entrepreneur have in this type of a, in this type of a setup? Tax implications, savings, anything like that? So when you put the money over here, it's after tax dollars. Okay. okay? But now the money's in a tax-free environment because everything that that policy makes is tax-free. So that's the one advantage. But the big thing when you got a company is this. So it, would that be similar then to like Roth, solo 401k? Think of, a, think of a solo Roth, right? Okay. Money's going into it after taxes. You've already gotten paid. You paid taxes on it. Money goes in there. For the rest of your life, it's all tax-free. Okay. Same idea. Even on accrual outside of the account? No. So any money? No, that would be an advantage of a Roth. Okay. okay. So if you had a Roth and you did a wholesale deal with your Roth, the profits from the wholesale deal are now tax-free because they're inside that qualified plan in that thing, but you, you were capped because you can't use that money until 15 and a half. This one, when you take the money out, like I, I lend a lot of money. There's no secret. I mean, anyone that looks my name up, you'll see like, I, that's all I do. I lend and I lend through private money club. But when I lend money out, I make 12%, 18% sometimes that's taxable income to me. So from a tax standpoint, there's a lot of things you can do. I mean, I drive a vehicle over 6,000 pounds for an obvious reason. You know, I, I do a lot of things to get me deductions, but my money for my entire family, because I'm at a, and I'm at a level where my tax, you know, my federal tax are in excess of a hundred thousand. Yeah. So what I did is I, I meet a lot of really smart people and I followed exactly what the Clintons and the Gates and everyone else does. Buffett, uh, it's a trust structure. So my money starts in an operating, a holding company. Then if anything that come, doesn't get paid out of that to me to live, then flows to a business trust. And then from the business trust, that's where I own and hold all my real estate. My assets are all there and they grow. Then from there, anything that doesn't need it there flows to a family trust, which my house is owned by and everything from my household expenses, school, college for Vivi is there. Anything that I don't want to pay tax on from there, I flow it into a 501c3, a foundation. Okay. And I do charitable giving. I give a lot. And that's one of the favorite things. And I think someday when my daughter's older, her sole focus will be giving. Mm. Like that's, that's she's going to be brought up to understand, give, 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 and she'll manage and op- operate the foundation. So that's how my tax structure is, but that's not going to be applicable to, to most people. So most sure. people just need to learn a couple of things on how they can get deductions. Real estate's a great way to get deductions. There's no better way to get deductions, but understand when you sell it all, the uncle Sam's going to want their depreciation back. Sure. Um, vehicles that you drive, you can write off understanding intent versus, you know, how to get write-offs based on business intentions. 
Uh, there's all sorts of things. And there's lots of stuff you can get for that. I'm no tax expert, yeah. but I've been around really smart, wealthy people. And uh, they just know how to you know, not pay as much in tax. Is there advantages for businesses to open up whole life policies to like do well, that kind of stuff with? Yeah, there's tons. I mean, Coley is what that's called, corporate owned. And the biggest thing I always say is if your company is where all your money is, so let's say there's you and there's your company, but let's say your company's where the majority of the money is. Yeah. Like, oh, I'd love to do this, but if I take the money out of my company, I got to pay tax on it. Don't do that. If your company owned the policy, you're the insured. Banks, remember I said, the number one purchases of this, but a bank can't own a policy without a life. Mm. Their vice presidents, our executives, they insure every one of their vice presidents. That's how they own so much whole life. Your company, if you're the owner, you're an insurable interest of that company. So have the company own the policy, fund the policy, and use the money in the policy. And on a balance sheet or a personal financial statement, it says cash and bank. Look at the number two line. What does it say? Cash value life insurance. Hmm. Every personal financial statement, people just don't pay attention. Why would a bank have cash in bank number one as an asset, and cash value life insurance number two? Hmm. They understand how liquid it is. Yeah. So that would be the only reason to use a, a corporate owned. Most people should just own it personally. And then when your company needs money, lend it to your company. Hmm. Like I do this a lot in real estate. Uh, the company pay company. you interest. Yeah. So um, yeah. I take money from my pile. I just did this. Uh, I lent uh, 60000 to one of my companies for a flip that we're doing mm-hmm. okay, for the rehab. That 60000 I charge 6% on that money. So every month, my company writes me a check personally for 6% of whatever that money is I gave them. Hmm. And then when the flip's done, I get paid back that money. But the problem is I can't put all that back into my policy. So some of it's going to sit in a traditional bank account because if I make six and I can only put back what I took out plus the four, I'm going to have an excess. So that's why I have nine policies. As you do this long enough, money builds up in a traditional bank because you just can't siphon it all over. So then I open second policy, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. Got it. So there's a limit to how much you can put in the policy yeah, and because on an annual basis or? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, there's there's IRS rules that we got to follow. Got it. Um, I just had a big developer do a couple million bucks into his policy. So it's not how much you can put in. It's just how much, once you put it in, you make that money go to work, can go back to it. So if I make 12% on a private lending deal, yeah, I can't put 12% plus then when the deal pays off, all that money back in. I can put the money I took out plus whatever interest the insurance company charged me, but that's never going to work out to be the 12. So then that extra money's got to go. Gotcha. That would be the second policy. Gotcha. Okay. Makes sense. Well, listen, guys, if you're listening to this and you're like, this sounds awesome, but I have absolutely no idea where to get started and I'm not going to dedicate my life to figuring it out. That's why people like Chris exist. And that's why uh, his company exists is to help regular Joe Schmoes like us figure this kind of stuff out and, uh, and set up, set up our lives in a way that can uh, be different than the way everybody else decides to live. And frankly, like the crazy thing about this stuff, man, is I was talking to my brother-in-law about this, I don't know, a couple of years ago, because the sheer lack of financial education that we give in this country is a travesty by itself. And the proof of that exists within your own story of working 14 years on wall street, selling financial products and never once having heard of this thing, which is the thing that all of the people at the very top are all using and doing for them and their their families. Yeah. To do what I just explained to you, to have access to your money in the first 30 days and have that high percentage available. There's one thing that has to happen. It's, It's in the design of the contract, the advisor selling that me, when I build these for people, I have to take up to a 90% cut in my pay. So mm. a normal whole life on 10 grand would pay 5,500 on the lowest point. It's a good mm. day in the office. A person puts 10 grand in, I make 5,500. If a person puts 10 grand into the plan that I just said that I do for my clients, I make $387. Mm. So take 5,500 minus 387. That's how much more money my clients have to use immediately that 
Everybody else is don't. So now why would Wall Street firms or insurance companies train their agents to sell a product that pays their agent force 90% less? Yeah. They can't. And that's all you got to know. <laughs> that's so that's all you know about this. Right, right. Uh, yeah, that's that's the crazy part, man. And that's why I appreciate people like you who are out there trying to uh, trying to at least educate people and give them a way to do it without them beating their heads against the wall or, um, you know, calling it a scam. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, I appreciate it's you coming. Not from, a scam, that's for sure. Yeah, well, you're. I think you're proof of that. I think I think uh, with as much preaching you do about it, I think the government would have been down your ass already if government uh, if it was a scam. Yeah. <laughs> So. And the reason this isn't in the tax code is because everybody had that wrote the tax code had their money in there. Yeah. <laughs> went over a couple of those. So chrisnoggle.com, N-A-U-G-L-E. And then I know Chris puts out a ton of content, TikTok, Instagram, all over everything. Uh, so whatever platform you like to listen to, you like to check out, go check out some of the stuff that Chris has to offer. Uh, dude, thanks for coming on the show, man. This is a lot of fun. Really fun. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. Hey, hey, thanks for listening to this episode. That's it for today. As you all know, this show is completely free. Our only ask is that if you found anything valuable in this episode or in any of the episodes that you've listened to, then share it with somebody else and leave us a quick rating review in whatever platform you're listening to right now. It would be super, super helpful for us. Uh, so that's it for today, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in. Catch you next time. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.